Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hello everybody. I have a lady with me by name Lenora. She's a holistic coach dedicated to achieving and maintaining total health for the clients uh, for the rest of her life. She is 55 year old, a grandma of two, and I wanted her to talk about her journey, her story in her words. Welcome to the show Lenora. Thank you for being mm-hmm. here. Everybody has a story, right? Of course. And it makes us who we are today. So, as I was telling you in the pre-show, I wouldn't change my story for anything because it makes me this person who I am and I'm loving, compassionate and have a lot of empathy for people and I know that would not happen unless I had gone through the adversities that I did. So, I'm going to start from the beginning. So I've made a lot of really great connections and that's when I started my podcast up again. So um I'd want happy birthday to you. Yeah, oh thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to start from the beginning uh because every part of my life is very significant to where I am today and um I'm going to start by saying I was in a compensation fund uh the same lawyers who did the compensation fund for 9/11 victims they opened up a compensation fund for the people that were abused by priests oh okay and i don't think i shared this with you but my husband knew you know it was a very touchy thing with me it's something that happened when i was 9 so you all know that i'm almost 56 so it's a long time but if you've been abused you know you can work with it you can heal but it's never gone so he said you know han this this they're starting to do this and now i never asked for any money or anything like that when i was abused i didn't go when i was abused to the clergy i was 35 the first time i went because that's when things started to come to a head i have five children and after my third child for some reason just came to a head things started just getting out of hand with me so i came forward at 35 to the archdiocese and they gave me um therapy mm-hmm. but i never asked for money i was it wasn't even a thought in my head then i went to police and it was past the statute of limitations so there was nothing i could do yeah. with putting him in jail he did was taken out of the priesthood and then at 40 i got a letter saying that he was looking to be reinstated into the priesthood and i would have to go and testify again to keep him from doing that any hope of him staying out of the priesthood mm. so i had to go back to the archdiocese sit around a group of people he wasn't there but it was still really really hard and go through my whole story again and uh kept him out of the priesthood got a letter saying he is definitely banned from the priesthood which is really great but i was i'm saying this because i was very credible on the list for compensation but one of the questions they asked when i had to fill out all the information again and talk like did this abuse affect <laughs> your life mentally physically spiritually in your life and i laughed i i like literally was like are they kidding me so my whole life was dead at 9 years old my there was a death i never had a childhood hmm. i never i didn't know how to laugh or play with my kids when i had them it was death so i mean i did end up winning some money because i was credible because i came forward you know and they go by credibility but it was a long process and i'm just saying that and prefacing this if that's the right word before we start because it affected my whole life. Mm, mm, Until even now, but now I'm going to say in a good way because like I said, this is why I'm full of love and passion and so it started at the age of 2. I am a child of 11 children. I am one of 11. And um I'm the fourth up from the youngest. 
and I had spinal meningitis, which now we have vaccines and all that, but it affected my heart is I have problems with the valves in my heart, which we can't do anything about, and my hearing in my right ear, um, which under the circumstances, the doctor told my parents that it did not look good. I was in the hospital for three weeks, had fever of 108, 107. I was in a fetal position, did not move. I was in a crib and I swear I can remember at two years old. Yep. And I say this in my story that I, my parents would come visit me and I, the doctor, I heard the doctor talking to them. Hmm. I was two. Hmm. And this one particular day, the doctors was like, I'm sorry, it just does not look good for her. Hmm. And my parents were walking out of the hospital. It was this, this big window. Now I, I get the chills every time I say this, because I confirmed this with my mom. This was not something I read or, you know, I, my parents went down the steps, went outside, but they would always look up at this window where my crib was in the hospital and they were very sad and they were leaving and they look up and I'm jumping up and down in my crib. So I'm moving after like three weeks, right? So they come running back up. I remember this, it, I was two. So I recovered from that, but I had significant loss of hearing in my right ear, which was never addressed because there were so many kids. And plus the fact I could not see, like, I don't have glasses now. I had laser surgery when I was, I don't know, 20 something years ago and knock on wood, I have not needed glasses. These are blue light blocker glasses for a computer and blue light. But um, I couldn't see and I could not hear. Hmm. So even at a young age, I always kind of, even though I am very bolsterous, I was never good with people. I was never good in school, always sitting in the back, but not hearing. So it was a very lonely, very lonely time. And I always felt different in my house, even before the abuse, for some reason. I felt like in, even in this house of so many people, I felt very alone, really alone. And my mom, she did the best she could. I mean, what are you going to do with 11 children? Yep. My father would not be there that many, that much. My father was a, um, owned a, um, um, auto body shop. And he was also the, um, he was the, uh, world champion handball player, which I don't know if anybody knows handball, very vigorous sport. Um, that is why I'm very disciplined with my fitness and all of that, which is good. But um, he wasn't home a lot. And my mom, we had two washers, two dryers. My mom would iron everything. My mom would, uh, you know, make our lunches, went to Catholic school, uh, you know, dinner on the table. It wasn't crazy exclusive dinner, but we had dinner. We had a big round, Lazy Susan, my father made with a big round table. And, uh, you know, we'd have dinner or whatever um but then you know in between all this my brother my oldest sibling was in Vietnam and uh he was the firstborn his name is Joseph and um he used to be an altar boy loved God but then was in war mm. and there was Agent Orange you know he now I know he had schizophrenia plus being affected by agent orange and being in the war i read some of the letters that my mom had why would god do this what kind of god would have this fighting and war and killing and he was discharged honorably because he was just psychologically messed up and i remember him being terrified just terrified of him. He was our oldest brother, but um, he would be calm for a minute or five or 10 minutes. And then the next minute he'd be throwing chairs across the wall 
Hmm. He would be screaming. He would get mad if we used more than one paper towel. To this day, I still am conscious of how many paper towels I take because do you know how much paper towels cost? People, you know, like, and scary as anything. He was very scary. I was terrified, terrified of my brother. We were all terrified of my brother. Even my parents were terrified of him. He would, my little sister, he would like toss her up, you know, to play. Like, whee, you know, and my parents, I remember I get, I'm getting the chills again because they would be so terrified, but afraid of him not to say, Joe, don't do that to her. You know, like it wasn't said. If you're sitting around the table, I don't know what possessed one of my siblings, but you know, we throw a pee across the table at somebody Hmm. and the anger in him and the throwing of the chairs. And we were just terrified. This went on for years, you know? And so, you know, being a child that was already felt lonely and then had this scared feeling all the time we'd come off the bus and if we'd see his car in the driveway we'd actually go hide in this closet that we had it was a pretty big closet Hmm. and we'd be like okay let's feel out how he is and then we kind of creep out you know come on out one instance was there was bazooka gum and I used to eat sugar all the time sugar 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 and um there's significance to the story with that, but I went in his car because I knew there was bazooka gum in his glove compartment. Mm. And I say this in my story when I was writing, I don't know what possessed me to do that. Like, duh, like, why would I do that? But my, I think my friend was over and I gave her a piece and he knew that it was gone. And he came in the house and he's, oh, death, my, I mean, <clears throat> I can't even. Of course, I make a beeline to the closet, shaking, and he's yelling, but then things simmer down after hours, and he said, it's okay, Lenora, come on out, it's all right, everything is good. I come out of the closet, he picks me up, throws me against the wall, he's a big guy, don't you ever, I mean, it's just, it was a life of that. And it was not being accepted by my sibling. My nickname was the leech because anybody who would come in that house, I would hold on to because I felt so not wanted. I felt there was nothing. Mm. There was nothing and nobody for Mm. me. And felt so alone. So my brother, any attention that I could get from my mom I would. So for some reason, and I said this on other podcasts, it just seemed like my mom and me and like there was nobody else around. And I don't know why that is, but my brother tried to commit suicide three, two times before he actually was, did it. And I was there both times with my mom when he tried. One in particular was he took a cross and cut from top to bottom with a cross. And I remember them being, taking him out in a stretcher and he lived from that. But it just seeing that and seeing the pain in my mom, not even having her already, (laughs) and then really not having my mom, you know, and I remember her cooking and she'd be like, get away, Lenora, get away. You know, I, I just want, I just want to hug her. Or I would have cramps in my legs at night and I'd pretend and scream like I was in pain. So she would come in and rub my leg. So Mm -hmm. I'd have something. So I was around for those times when he tried to kill himself. The third time I was nine and, uh, I was watching Zoom and you're way too young to know what Zoom is, but it was a show that if you were a baby boomer, you probably know it. And I was, TV was my friend. And I had long hair like you down past my butt and I'd sit on my hair and I'd be this close to the TV and I'd be like this. 
because I couldn't see and I couldn't hear. So that was my friend. And that's all I did. Watch TV, Brady Bunch, all that stuff. So my other brother comes running up the stairs and he's crying hysterically and he's calling 911. And I'm like, what's going on? I go downstairs. I see my mom and they're carrying my brother out and they're saying he's going to be okay. But I knew, I knew he was dead. Hmm. And what he did was my, we had a little bench press rack and my brother was bench pressing my one brother and my other brother killed himself right behind him. Okay. Yeah. So it was really bad. And, um, I wrote about the guilt that I had, that I felt relieved. I felt I didn't have to have fear anymore. Hmm. I didn't understand the pain he was in. I didn't understand all those drugs that were in his closet. They were doing, they were messing with his head even more. I didn't know what he endured in war, you know, PTSD. I didn't know what that was, right? So after that, we had a priest that was a friend of the family, but he was a friend of the family, not my, well, I mean, I guess he was my friend, but he would walk in the house. He was coming to console the family. What age was my? I was nine. Okay. That's when it all started. Mm-hmm. So I was nine and he would come in and I would hug him and his name was Jim, Father Benedetto. And I don't care. It's okay because he's been in, he has already been in every paper. He, they have told all the priests that have abused children. So that's his name, mm. Jim Benedetto. And as far as I know, he's still living. So he, would, he came in, but he would come now more often. And he took to me like that because I was an easy target. I was the leap. I wanted that affection. Mm. My mom, being the Catholic holy person that she is, was never not going to, there was nothing about not trusting a priest. Yes, of course. There wasn't a question about it. So the things I'm going to tell you, I don't think people are probably going to be like, no way, but I'm telling you the truth. My father, we'd have him over like three times a week for dinner, you know, for sit, watch TV. My father would be on his recliner over here. We had another couch here, separate. My mom would be on this side reading her lady's journal. And I'd be on the other side. And there was a blanket there. Hmm. And he would put the blanket over us. And I would hear his sounds, his noises. So my parents would fall asleep. They're so exhausted, have all these kids. My father would be conked out within five minutes. My mom would be like this with her lady's journal. And meanwhile, he was doing what he was doing. And I felt it. His sweat, his smell. And I just didn't know. I just didn't know. I knew it was wrong, you know? But I'd be like, as I wrote later in my, what I read, no, not the blanket. No, not the blanket, you know, in my head. But then he would give me baths. I'll give her a bath. At the age of nine? Yeah, nine to almost 12. And your parents allowed it. Yeah. yeah. I don't want anybody, they're going to have their opinion of my parents, but oh. I forgive my, I forgive my parents because it was a whole different world back then. Yes. I, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll put her to bed. Hmm. And there was, he took, I'll say he took away my innocence not my soul, but he did take away my innocence. Um, He told me that this is our secret. He wrote me letters. Like I would, 
I, my sister and I would share a room with my sister. My sister had a boyfriend, steady boyfriend. And for some reason, well, obviously she wasn't there when that happened, but we'd clean our room and I'd open my draw and I'd see these letters and I'd open them and be like, fold them back up again. Cause I knew it was wrong. Yep. Yep. You're special, you're mine, you're this, right? My mom would always say, God's going to punish you. Hmm. If I did, if I hit my sister or if I, whatever I did, God's going to punish you. That was the word. That was the, that was the line. So he, you don't want God to punish you. Do you, you don't want God to punish you. Hmm. So, you know what? I was a piece of meat. Yep. I was a piece of meat and that's the way I viewed myself probably until, <laughs> oh my God, probably until I was 45 years old. Wow. Wow. Until I, until I finally could work on myself in all ways, um, start telling my story start writing about it, knowing that I'm worthy and I'm, I'm loved and I'm pure love. And I say it enough to enough people where I have to remember, say it to me, say it to me. I have to say it first. And sometimes it's really hard to remember to do that. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be really honest that it took a really, really long time not to think of myself as this object. So, and you know what changed it too, is that the looks, they fade. I always relied on my looks, my body, because mm. it was always kind of okay. But then, you know, I'm getting older. And it's like, it's like, things all have to shift. Yep. Yep. I want to be this love inside that when people know this love inside, they see the beauty outside because this is love inside and it's coming out, you know? But I don't want to get too far off track. So that that went on, that went on. And I don't know how it ended, honestly. I really don't have a clear cut picture, but because I had to go through the whole timeline with my husband when I had to do the compensation fund, that's when I knew, okay, it was nine to almost 12. This is, this, these are the things I know that happened to me. There was oral sex. There was, there was, cause for the longest time, and I, you said I could talk about anything, everything. My husband kind of looks like him. I hate to say that. So for, we've been married 34 years. For the longest time we'd be doing any something and I'd scream and I'd stop, just stop more times than I can tell you. Mm -hmm. And my husband understands and he, but when they say, how did this affect you? Did this affect, it affected my marriage. It affected the way I brought up my children. It affected my eating. It affected everything as you'll find out. So of course I didn't think anything of me. I just didn't have any self-worth at all I knew I could get any guy seriously I know that sounds but that's all I felt worthy of I didn't know what love was so then at 15 I had this boy that I liked I liked him and before my husband and he would uh snort cocaine I never did drugs surprisingly I mean you know, I'm very happy and proud about that because definitely could have taken that turn. I mean, I did have some issues with drinking, but not really. It's, um, I don't have a problem with alcohol, but I could see the crutch, but yeah. the crutch I had was bulimia and you'll find out about that. So at 15, I had this boy and I really, really liked him, but think because I trusted and I really liked him I didn't give him anything sexually at all and I didn't want to I thought he loved me mm. 
I thought that's what love was, right? So one night on a cocaine, crazy whatever, he raped me. He, I said no. He was saying, I broke your cherry. I did, you know, uh, it was horrible. I mean, I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, we were in his room and I said, no, no, I don't want to. And it, it was not, it was <laughs> so traumatic. I ran out of his house. I said, please take me home. He had a Camaro, you know, and he's driving, he's on Coke. I got home, got home. That was it, you know. I felt like a piece of meat. My brothers used to have her, his friends sleep over. I just let his friends do whatever on the floor. We'd all sleep on the floor in the living room. Felt really unworthy and uh, in so much pain because I don't, I didn't know how to go on. I didn't know what happiness felt like. I didn't know what it was to like have your friends and be like, hey, let's let's have fun. And it's it, there was no fun. There was nothing. I'd sit in my room, there was black and white TV, a little black and white TV, and I'd be this close to it. And that's what I did. TV was my only friend, like I said. So as I get older, um, the same boyfriend who uh, raped me, for some reason, I just couldn't understand how he could treat me like this and, and say that he loved me. So I said, why don't you, why don't you love me anymore? Like why, I went up to him in a hallway in a school, in the school. And he said, if you weren't so fat, I'd go out with you again. And this is where I'm gonna say, words do make a difference. And I'm not saying that's why I became bulimia because it's definitely a, was because of control, because I had no control over my body. I felt like I had control over my food, like nobody was gonna tell me what to eat, what not to eat. Um, but then the food controlled me ultimately. And I almost died from that. That was my second bout of, of almost death. And that, was from 16 to 22. Mm -hmm. And I uh, started being, I was anorexic. I was very thin. And back then, you know, we didn't know anorexia, bulimia, whatever. I was 16, a long time ago. I'd wear baggy clothes. And then my period stopped. And I was really scared. You know, I was really scared. So I did end up telling my mom. And my mom takes me to the doctor, which was very rare because I didn't, and by now I did have glasses, but the glasses, you know, were like this big, you know, the Urkel glasses and we never did anything about my hearing. So I wouldn't wear my glasses. So I still would not do well in school forever until I went to, uh, you know, until I got married and went back to school for dental assisting and, um, I'm a nurse now, a registered nurse. So I really did well because I actually liked school. I was like, boy, I like school. <laughs> Who would have known? But anyway, so um, I started with anorexia. I went into the doctor. I was very thin. The doctor's answer was you, had, you have to feed her. She has to eat. Okay. So <laughs> we know that's not what an eating disorder is. Mm. you know, mental disorder. So, okay. My father would drag me, the Italian father that he is would say, you're eating, sit down. You're eating, you're eating. So I found a way to throw up. I don't, I can't tell you how I learned how, but I did. And then that was it. I, I almost died many times because I have a problem from my heart from the spinal meningitis. So my electrolytes were always off because I would throw up four to five times a day, wherever, like I'd find places. Um, and I was dating my husband then. Mm -hmm. And I would say, oh, I need to, I'm going to take a bath. 
and I like take a bath in the middle of the day. Who does that? You know, it's like, you know, nobody knew. Nobody knew. And I would be on the floor with blood because then I knew that everything was out. On the toilet, hanging over the toilet, saying, God, just please take me. Just take me now. Rocking, wanted to die. Couldn't deal with it. Wanting to die. I can't tell you how many times I <laughs> thought about killing myself. Telling my mom I'm going to kill myself. I can't take this life anymore. I was the cleanest bulimic because I would brush my teeth, like take something brush, but I was doing more harm than good. I was brushing around the acid on my teeth. So my teeth are totally ruined now. I have no enamel on my teeth. Um, my gums um, are really, really bad um, just from the vigorous brushing, you know? Um, I was rushed to the hospital many times because nobody knew. They thought I had a problem in my heart, like I was having a heart attack because I didn't tell them what was going on. So I would have to go to the hospital many times, you know, from this imbalance in my heart. The dentist knew, you know, the dentist, I would go to the dentist and he'd be like, but I'd never admit it. You know, I would never admit it. And what changed me was um, I wanted to have children. And, but in between all that, from 16 to 22, I had this bulimia, but at 19, I had a major car accident. And uh, I was in ICU for three days. That was my third bout with death. So I had a fractured skull and I had a facial nerve crushed in my left side of my head. And I was in JFK hospital in New Jersey I don't remember the accident at all, but I was 19. And um, by now I had contacts, but um, they take me to JFK hospital. The only thing I remember is coming out of a, whatever I was in, coma, out. I took out my contacts. And the first thing I thought of was, oh my God, how am I gonna throw up? Where am I? Yeah, and then I went back out again. And then the next thing I know, I have a turban over my head, which I nobody would show me a mirror. The doctor didn't know what to do. He actually just said, there's nothing I can do for her. Now, meanwhile, I can't hear anything in my left ear now. And my face is paralyzed. And I'm 19. And I'm kind of pretty before all this, but... <laughs> You know, um, but I don't know this. All I know is everybody's coming in and looking at me and they're crying and my family and my boyfriend and the doctor's coming in saying, twitch your eye, uh, wink your, or crinkle your forehead. Let me see you smile. Like, why are they asking me this? So my father knew important people and they were able to get me over to Mount Sinai in New York right away. And a doctor named Dr. Eden, who is a lifesaver, operated on me right away. They shave my head, they make a cut, back of my ear, I have a hole in the back of my head in my skull. And they took out the bone that was crushing the facial nerve and actually saved it. So that relieved the pressure on my nerve but of course I'm not hearing anything. And there's nothing you can do about that because it's a bone and there's no conduction. So even a hearing aid wouldn't do anything for me. So I have half my head shaved. I don't even know what's going on here. I don't even know. I'm like, what is going on? It's okay, hon, everything's all right. You're gonna be fine. You're living, like you, you lived through all this, you're good. So they saved the bone, it's three weeks later. I say to my husband now, you know, my boyfriend, what, you know, what do I look like? What the, you know, you don't want to look in the mirror, honey. It's okay. It's all right. Well, I go in a mirror and I can't move my face. Hmm. 
and I can't hear for shit because I already couldn't hear it in my right ear. So this is my new life. So I was able to figure out how to throw up again. I mean, that came really quick. So I was still throwing up with a crooked face. I go to rehab for a year at Mount Sinai to move my face again. So it's about 85% now. It's still not 100%. Um, and then I go back in the hospital after a year of rehab. So they know that, okay, this is all her face is going to come back. I did win a little money from the accident. I wasn't driving. And um, they do another surgery. They shave my head. I cut my hair, head again to trans put the bone back in, hoping that I would hear again, but it did not work. So I'm completely deaf in my left ear and I have some hearing in my right, which I'm very grateful for because I'm able to do this and I'm able to hear. Um, so um, then, <laughs> this is a long story. Then, uh, you know, I'm thinking I'm not getting pregnant. And I'm thinking it's because I'm throwing up. Mm. But come to find out, I have only one tube and one ovary on opposite sides. Which anybody in a medical field is going to know, it's crazy. Yep. That And I went to infertility for a year. An infertility specialist, not with my husband's support. He did not want to have a baby right away. But I felt like it was the only thing that was going to save me from bulimia. Is I knew I wouldn't throw up if I was pregnant. Mm. and it was killing me it was literally killing me and I, I was gonna die from it if my kids didn't save me mm. so um I come to find out from the infertility specialist they do an operation back then you cut all the way across you're in the hospital for a week because that's what you did then there was no laparoscope surgeries so the doctor's last words were it'll be a miracle if you get pregnant but miracles happen yes so five kids later wow. my husband ended up getting vasectomy but from that i put up a tiktok recently that these are the reasons that i'm living and they're my five children so i had i may not have had them for the right reasons but they are my everything and they literally saved my life because eight years I had five kids and then I breastfed them. They never had a bottle, never had, because I knew that I was giving to somebody else what I didn't have, any nourishing, any love or anything like that. So that I, I have not thrown up since, that's 22, I was 22. So they saved my life, literally. And then, um, you know, at 35, after my third baby, I just had a memories come back of what happened to me because of my little kids. Like if anything ever, ever, ever happened to my children, I would die. So of course I was so protective. So I had four boys. And my baby, a baby, she's 23 now, is, is a girl. But I didn't leave them with anybody. Um, I would only leave them with my sister-in-law or my mom or whatever. And that was very rare. I would breastfeed and bring them everywhere. I mean, we went to, he had to go to Germany for work. And I was one month shy of a 12 month of breastfeeding. I brought my baby with me because there was no way I was going to not do it and, and keep him and love him. And, you know, and uh, not until they were able to talk with, did I leave them with somebody. And mm. then I would always, and this is what I would tell everybody here, open communication with your kids. You get down on their level, start very, very young. I'm talking five, like yep. young. And you ask them or you tell them if anything makes you funny or funny in your belly. I was on top of that. Always. I mean, it was a little too much. But um, so at 35, I had this bomb. And that's when I went to the archdiocese. That's when they gave me my therapy. And I loved this lady. She was a sister of charity, actually. 
And, uh, and I would also urge everybody else to get somebody that you connect with, a therapist that you connect with. It's so important. And I had other therapists, but never connected until I found this woman. And then I had her, I went to the archdiocese, that's what they did. And then I went to go tell my parents. And my dad never said a word to me. Mm. And it hurt like a mother effer. Sorry, you guys, but it hurt so bad. And at the time, of course, I, that's all I felt was hurt. Yep. Now I'm, I'm, I forgive. My father has been dead for nine years now, Alzheimer's. But I realized what my dad went through in his life. He was abused. He, you know, so I was able to understand that. My mom, was so devastated and but we never talked about it after that you know we never talked about it she said I gave him all our money from the funeral I trusted that man I gave him a gold chalice that we got from the funeral I mean it was like my mother's this old Italian almost 93 you know I don't bring it up I never bring it up but um so it really wasn't accepted and it wasn't something you know that I felt like okay about you know with my my mom and dad and then at 40 like I said I had to go back and forward but I worked on myself worked on myself in between all that I did not know how to be with my kids I like I said it was weird to play you know I didn't know how I didn't know how to play Barbies and be like oh here's a Barbie and Yes, and we're happy. And so my kids, I like to say, well, I don't like to say, but I have a shirt that says the world's okayest mom because I did the best I could. And it's all I could do. So I'm a kick-ass grandma. I'm a kick-ass Luna. My name is Luna Moon for grandma. That's what the kids call me. But what happens usually if you're abused or if you're, you become an alcoholic at a certain age and you recover and you are getting better, you go back to those ages where you lost yep. and you relive them. So I'm 56. I'm an outside 56, but inside I'm never going to grow up because I'm just loving life. Now at this point in my life, I am helping others with my podcast. It's uh, you know, it's a new dawn. There's always a new beginning. There's always a new day to start over. Um, hashtag time to tell your story. Hashtag every story is important. And um, doing this, telling my story, hoping that even one person knows that they can overcome. Um, so from all that adversity, um, I think you wanted me to, what became from all that. It's just that I it's an everyday work on myself, yep. but I am a holistic, RN holistic health coach. And I do believe that I put that food together with feeling good in my brain, you know, back when I was probably 45, that's when it really all started coming together. Um, where that connection of food is, is the foundation of everything. It's yep. the foundation of everything. Because when my food is high energy, when I get really good fats in my brain, talking coconut oil, avocado, uh, if you like fish, uh, you know, uh, ghee, things like that. That's what I live on. Pasteurized eggs. Um, I don't have to, it doesn't have to be a crazy diet. Um, but nourishing your body with good energy food, you're not gonna be looking for all that stuff to fill that void. Yep. And I'm talking not only food, but being conscious of what you are doing, uh, thinking in your thinking, how you deal with people, how efficient your workout is, yep. how uh, clear your mind is in meditation, uh, just from that foundation of food. So I was able to, get that. I was, I studied it. I became a nutritional counselor. I was like, I'm going to get this because this is everything. And when I had my kids and when I, they were diagnosed, when the teachers were diagnosing my kids, they have ADHD, they have this, put them on some drugs 
Now, mind you, I am a registered nurse. I'm not saying that if you need medication, take your medication. What I'm saying to look at the other avenues too. Like they never looked at my kids as far as what are your kids eating? Yeah. How is the quality of their sleep? Well, their quality of sleep is crap because I cannot have control over what they're doing in school and feeding into their yeah. mouths. You know what I mean? And ultimately you really don't have control yep. of your food of, for kids unless you start them very young. There is the, the connection with food is so high. And when I work with people, hey, I can't afford organic food or I can't, well, we go down another tier. Let's see how you can do with this. Let's get at least fresh fruits and vegetables. And if they're not organic, they're not organic. But I always tell people, and I don't know if you believe this, but I, the energy in our food and in what you are doing in that interaction, right? So a lot of people are sitting here eating and they're watching TV and they're not even conscious of what they're doing, right? So what I propose is that you make your food with love no matter what it is. As you're making it, I know this sounds crazy but and woo-woo, but you're making it and you're cutting it. I'm making this food with love. This food is going to nourish me. It's going to give me the best nutrients that it can, right? And then when you eat, whether you believe in God, the universe or whatever, you pray before you eat that food, please give me all the nutrients that I can get from this food and consciously eat that food. Enjoy your food, chew it, love it. <laughs> so no matter how, if you don't have money, if it, it doesn't matter, just make that food good energy food. True. It makes such a difference. So from there, I was able to think clearer and I was able to put all those pieces together. And then I became an RN, you know, um, back, you know, I didn't become an RN until I was in 2011. So my kids were still kind of little, but I wanted to do more. So although I'm not in a hospital, I'm not doing that. I bring that into my coaching or whatever I do every, all the time, because it's part of it. It's part of the equation, just like exercise, just like uh, walking in nature is important, just like some kind of mindful something, whether it be yoga or just sitting in silence or just walking without earbuds in your ears, yep. you know, where um, good quality water and all of that will lead to good quality sleep. You know, if you are at 65 degrees in your room, black at all the light, no animals on your bed and, you know, you'll be good to go. It's, it's, I'll whole, I want to share this. I want to scream it because the change in my life from just that foundation. And this is a gal who is on a side of a tub rocking back and forth, wanting to kill herself to now, you know, and I've apologized to my children. I apologized to my husband and it's not been an easy road at all, but it's all good. Now, I'm so, so happy. I'm so happy to be able to share. So happy to be able to get through the story without crying. Although crying's okay. I'm not saying it's not. But there was a time a year and a half, two years ago when I said this on another podcast that I could not get through the bulimia. I did eventually, but the bulimia part always gets me because that was such a dark, 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 dark time also. Of course. Yeah. If no. you are okay to share, like, what was the process of questioning, like, when you went to um, say about what happened to you? The positive part of it? Yeah, the questionnaire. The positive. You, yeah, the people that asked. Like, the, po the, the outcome, what positive outcomes from it, it? Everything, actually. I mean, the type of questions they would ask us, like, I have seen parents that had children has gone through whom I asked like, what was the procedure like? Or like they shared about like what kind of a procedure their kids had to go through when they were talking about what happened to them. Versus you being an adult, what kind of a questions that you had just to understand like what will be the procedure overall and see like if there are any gaps for us to fill up, something like that. I'm not quite sure what you mean, like uh, questions that they asked me growing up I'm not like not when I got you mentioned like you went uh 
for testifying against the priest? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they asked me about the story. They asked me about, tell me what happened. Tell me, you know, from start, pretty much exactly what I told you. Okay. Um, but I had to go into detail. I went into as much detail as I could. And especially during the whole compensation thing, I had to really go into detail. Mm -hmm. um, that was really hard. Yeah. It was really really hard because others who have been abused will say this is true that sometimes things don't come out until way later yes and that I couldn't believe what this man did to me and if I could just let everybody else parents out there like I said communicate with your kids there was no communication there was this, this blind thing, you know, I mean, I forgive my parents and they totally did the best they could. Um, but it's not like they sat and said, are you okay with the, with the priest bringing you to the back? You know, of course that would never happen now. You wouldn't even think of that, yeah. but to be very conscious parents, just be very conscious of what's going on and notice if there's any differences in your children, Yep. yep. you know? notice notice and be down and especially on their level like kneel down look them eye to eye really listen to them put your phones away i mean and i'm talking about myself too i'm like this i do everything on my phone now but you know put it away have deep conversations have a weekly family meeting you know these are so important they sound simple but they need to be done they need to be done. Um, I want to save these children. I, I just can't. I look at a nine-year-old, like my nieces and nephews, and and like, and I cry just thinking, just looking at them. Like, their if their innocence was just wiped away, I would die. It's like it did. It was a death. It was a total death. I searched for love from everybody. I was like grasping, grasping, and, and looking, using this, this exterior, which really sucks because you're a beautiful woman, but I think we all are gonna age and, and some, some age very nicely. Like my mom, my mother-in-law is 93. She looks like Sophia Loren. Her love like just comes out in her looks, but this is all I had. You yep. know, it was like my body, my this, my that. Um, I could just say that I've accepted my body through all that bulimia. I mean, getting on a scale, oh, putting one foot on, taking one foot off, uh, taking my clothes off, putting my clothes back on, uh, moving the scale to a different position. The scale was like my only thing that, that told me how worthy I was, right? So I actually, I'm very adamant about not using that piece of metal as your gauge. Even when I train people, it's only an initial weight. Yep. And that's it. You know, I do not make it an obsession. As a matter of fact, I did a TikTok on, you are way more than this piece of metal. Yep. I held up the scale. I said, you are worthy. You are loved. You are important. So this is why I'm so passionate for what happened because of what happened to me so it's okay it's really okay because i i i wouldn't be who i am i wouldn't be me i know that sounds really cliche but it's true okay thank you for tuning in and you can find me on all the socials at smitha gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned see you next week take care